Welcome to the Eco Inquiry Podcast. I'm Jennifer Barron, your host. I am speaking to you from the traditional territory of the Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe. I'm on the Williams Treaty. Our closest Indigenous partners in education are the Chippewa of Georgina Island, First Nation. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Hilary Inwood. Hilary is a teacher, educator, researcher, and artist who leads the Environmental and Sustainability Education Initiative at the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. Her research focuses on deepening teachers' knowledge and skills in environmental learning and on develop creative, developing creative approaches to environmental education. One of the creative approaches that Hilary brings to her career is in developing multiple partnerships to forward the work of environmental education, not just in Ontario, but in Canada and beyond. So let's listen to Dr. Hilary Inwood speak to us about strategies for developing partnerships in environmental education. Thank you for joining us. I am very excited to introduce Dr. Hilary Inwood as my guest today on the Eco Inquiry podcast. Dr. Hilary Inwood is a teacher educator, researcher, and artist who leads the Sustainability and Climate Action Initiative at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, OISE, at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. Her research focuses on developing teachers' knowledge, capacity, and creativity in environmental and sustainability education. She co-chairs a national network that aims to better embed environmental and sustainability education into teacher education across Canada and coordinates an innovative partnership between OISE and the Toronto District School Board focused on enhancing teachers' professional learning. Good morning, Hilary. Good morning, Jen. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being on Eco Inquiry Podcast. So uh, I know you wanted to start with a land acknowledgement. Absolutely. You know, I, I know that land acknowledgements are quite contentious these days, but I still think they're important to do. And, you know, I, I live and I work on the territory that's covered by Treaty 13 um, of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And, uh, you know, they have this territory has been referenced in lots of other agreements, the uh, 24 Nations Wampum Belt, uh, as long as uh, as well as the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really am working on a territory that has a deep, deep history uh, with many different Indigenous peoples, including the Huron-Wendat and the Patun First Nations, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa and the Haudenosaunee. Um, But I'm just so grateful to the legacy that all of these First Nations communities have left uh, on this land and our understanding of this land as well. Thank you. And you and I are friends. I've known you for I think we first met at the COEO conference about 20 years ago when I was in your workshop on art education and environmental education. And we could talk for days. We have talked for days, but (laughs) we have. have. But one of the things I want to share with people who are listening is what brought you to the work in environmental education? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're kind of signaled that um, I have not come in in a in a traditional kind of route to this work. Um, many people like yourself have come in through um, the pathway of science education. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm so appreciative of all of my science education colleagues who have 
brought this work forward over the last 40 or 50 years. They've really done an amazing job um, to, to continue to bring the message around the climate crisis forward um, at a time when it wasn't called the climate crisis, in fact, in the early days. Um, but I come to this work through art education, which is a, a slightly different route that's becoming increasingly popular, which I'm thrilled to see more and more of my colleagues in the arts are uh, coming to uh, bring environmental learning to their students of all ages. But, um, uh, you know, interestingly, the instigation for me was 9-11. I was a young mom at the time of uh, that horrific event in the, in the States. It had uh, ramifications uh, around the world. And uh, certainly at the time, many of us felt that the world was starting to crumble a bit. And um, I, I realized that I couldn't continue doing the work that I'd already been doing in art education for a number of years in the same way that I had before. I realized that I had to use my work in art education um, as a vehicle to help to make the world a slightly better place. And that certainly alleviated some of my anxiety as a young mother that I was doing all that I could to ensure a, a healthy and sustainable future for, for my children. So, so that was the start, was trying to figure out those interconnections between art education and environmental education. And uh, they were not obvious in the early years when I started this work about 25 years ago. I didn't, uh, didn't really understand how to start, except that I did know that there were artists already doing work in the field. And I started to research those artists um, and realized that there was some really extraordinary artistic work focused on the environment going on already in the 90s. And, um, and so I guess that was my entree in, was realizing that these artists just needed some advocates within education to share the work that they were already doing. And so I'm, I was pleased to do that. I have a background in art history and uh, that, that was a, a logical starting point for me. And it kind of just snowballed from there. Uh, it snowballed into art making with environmental themes with uh, both students and adults. It led into community-based art projects with an environmental focus. And, and certainly I started to deepen my understanding around environmental learning after that. And that led to uh, doctoral work in the area as well. So I'm going to go off script already, and I did not realize that 9-11 was your instigator for having that eco-anxiety and, and changing course. And, you know, I was hiking with students at an outdoor ed center when 9-11 happened, and we came back to the bus, and the bus driver, who was a retired principal, told us. And I, I think that that changed so much. The eco-anxiety that you're talking about I see teaching in outdoor ed, it really brought what I could say to everywhere, sort of a culture of, of fear. And it's interesting, you know, what makes me think of, of the pandemic that actually, although outside air is considered safer than inside air, that there still is this deep, deep anxiety and as well compounded with eco-anxiety. And so I'm, I'm just gonna ask you a quick question. How do you see that sort of level of anxiety in others transforming other educators and wanting to be more deeply committed to environmental education. Yeah, and there's no doubt that there has been a, a pretty rapid increase in the last 10 years around climate anxiety and not just with adults. Um, you know, as an adult, I discovered that one of my ways of dealing with that was to bring my, I, I already always had an interest in the environment um, and had taken small actions in my own life, but I would not consider myself a political activist in those early years. So it was about trying to bring my activism 
uh, into connection with my professional responsibilities already. And that's where I felt a way to alleviate my climate anxiety. I felt that as long as I was making a contribution in some positive way, that that was, um, that, that, that was how I could move forward. Uh, and so I guess, you know, I, I've been seeing lots of educators um, deal with their own climate anxiety in the same way, by taking action, by working with students in their classrooms, uh, in their studios, uh, wherever that might be, uh, outdoors for sure. Um, and so we're now seeing this manifested though in students. We're seeing increasing numbers of students, sometimes at very young ages, expressing climate anxiety. But interestingly, I think this is getting more and more uh, teachers and educators and researchers on board. I actually had a researcher from uh, OISE, the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education, the place that I work, come to me recently and say, I really need to redirect my research program towards climate change education because I'm hearing from my teenager how concerned they are about the state of the world. So, you know, that's helping to take us in a new direction and at a quicker rate, which I think are all positive steps forward. Okay, so I, I really appreciate that you've brought this up and I, I wanna take it to a personal level, that sort of micro level before I ask you about some of the macro level connections that you are making about climate change education. So I know on a personal level, you know, you've spoken about how your trip to the Arctic and how your trip out west and driving back from uh, British Columbia when there were a lot of forest fires, how that both of those, those visits within Canada really profoundly affected you. And, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate on those experiences and the impacts they had on you. Yeah, and I would say um, in different ways, I was really fortunate to be part of the, the Canada C3, the coast to coast to coast journey that was part of the commemorations of Canada's 150th anniversary in 2017. This was an extraordinary journey put together by um, the Students on Ice Foundation and Jeff Green, uh, which was just quite an amazing undertaking. It had Canadians join in this uh, shipbound journey uh, starting in Toronto and it went all the way around uh, and landed in Vancouver so right around through the north and I was lucky to be on uh, one of the sections that went on through the Arctic it was uh, really a remarkable experience that will stay with me forever and, and part of its remarkableness was in fact meeting the Inuit people in different communities along the way what I discovered was everything that I had been learning about indigenous philosophy and um, and relationality in fact plays out in how they live. And we had such a warm welcome. We shouldn't have been, really, right? These strangers arriving in a community on the ship to celebrate uh, an anniversary um, uh, of, of a time when in fact was a hugely difficult time for, for the Inuit people. So um, that notion of building relationships, of the importance of building relationships and community is something that's really stayed with me from that trip, that's certainly part of it. The other part was being able to step onto um, the Devon Ice Shelf and to, to really see a, a glacier that's melting and the effects and hear from experts about what those impacts will be. So being able to really live that experience was, was really powerful for me. I, I totally agree, just to interrupt for one second. I mean, I spent my university summers in the Yukon working at a small pool in a tiny community called called Haines Junction, which services Kluwani National Park. And you can look up when you're in town, you look up and you can see glaciers on the mountains and snow on the St. Elias Range. And 25 years later, you know, I took my son there and the, you can see visibly the glaciers have shrunk. 
So what we've both seen is that the effects or what we do, you know, in urban areas or in the rest of Canada profoundly affects what happens in the higher north. That's right. And we know that the north is experiencing global warming at about three times the rate of the rest of the world. In the south of Canada, about twice the rate. This is hugely problematic because we know that all of these natural systems are connected. And so when you uh, have something like increased glacier melt, we, they experienced this in British Columbia just last week with the following the heat waves, that they're seeing enormous amounts of water come down through the river systems and through the watersheds now um, that are um, directly attributable to the heat wave that happened uh, and set that, that heat dome that sat over British Columbia for about 10 days. Um, and they can't stop that extra rate of melt now that it started. So it's true. It's actually an emergency in the Yukon right now around Marsh Lake where there's so much excess runoff that uh, it's going over the dams that they've created. And yeah, big problems. And anyway, we know this is going to have a huge impact on Inuit mm -hmm. communities in the north, as well as First Nations and Métis communities in the north as well, because it affects their ability to live off the land, which they've done for thousands of years. And, and this is now hugely impactful in a negative way on their uh, traditional ways of life, on their uh, ability to uh, hunt for uh, traditional food sources, uh, all of which uh, help them to survive in the north. So all of that certainly... Um, led me to feel a greater sense of urgency uh, when I came back, that those um, relationships that had been begun, um, there are faces now connected to them. There are, there are words, there, there is love now connected to them because of the way they treated us as, as uh, really interlopers in their communities, which was, it was just uh, such a welcoming uh, experience. Um, you asked uh, a second question about the, the effects in BC. You know, the, we're now seeing following that heat wave and, and a number of summers ago, my family's in British Columbia. So um, I've been there twice now when they've had a significant forest fire season and we're heading into that yet again. So that affects air quality. It affects uh, certainly all of those living beings that are in forests that are going up in flames. Uh, this really has a, a really deep emotional impact on me as well as understanding sort of the science behind it. So it's, um, it, yeah, the world really feels like we've hit a tipping point with climate change and it is whereas there were there was a time not too long ago where we i could ask students and they would not be able to identify any impacts personal impacts on their local communities or neighborhoods around climate change all of a sudden everybody's recognizing that you know the forest fires might not be in our backyard but they're certainly in our country and they're coming closer yes I, as an environmental educator you know 30 years ago studying this at university and and I mean, at least more and more and more people are waking up to it now and uh, youth are leading that way. And, and, and I think both you and I recognize the importance of supporting educators to support students on that journey, to take that eco-anxiety and rather than it turning into, you know, a more profound anxiety issue or depression or apathy, just like, what can I do? I'm just one person, what can I do? that we can recognize the power of one, the, the power of the Greta Thunberg, right? And, 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 and have more and more people um, take on that initiative. So I now have two questions. Um, one is in your professional learning network at OISE, what are you doing or what have you done at OISE um, even with the, the sort of administration to work towards climate action and the climate action policy. And then I'm gonna go back to the educators. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think your comment about, you know, 
and the question that many people ask, well, what can I do? I'm only one person. But we do have spheres of influence that we all operate in. That might be your family as your sphere. It might be your group of friends. It might be your faith community. It might be uh, a charitable organization that you work with. Um, Catherine Hayhoe speaks about this, uh, who is an environmental scientist from the States who actually was raised in Toronto by a dad who's an outdoor educator with the Toronto District School Board. Catherine talks about um, that one thing we can start to do is just to talk with people. And that's where it all kind of started for me. In 2008, I went out for lunch with a colleague, one of my science colleagues at, uh, at uh, OISE, uh, her name was Jane Forbes. Um, Jane's since retired, but she proved to be a willing partner in trying to expand the work that we did at OISE. And it all, I, I joke that it all started with lunch. We went for lunch and we had a chat and we came up with just a, a really small wish list. Well, what, what, we, what would we do in environmental ed if we could expand the range? And so we started. Now we happened to get lucky in terms of timing because in 2009, the Ministry of Ed launched a new policy document uh, called Acting Today, Shaping Tomorrow. It's been in place since 2009. They did a big launch at that time um, that expanded the implementation of environmental ed across all grades in Ontario public schools and into all subjects. So we did get lucky with the timing. We had a policy document that allowed us to go to our administrative leaders and say, hey, this is coming down the pipe. We'd like to do some more work in this area. And they, to be fair, I found a really wonderful reception at OISE over the years that's allowed us to start small by just doing some after school workshops or talks um, and then building it into our own courses as a starting point. And then letting our colleagues know that we were doing this and questions would arise. And sometimes we would be allowed to do presentations and meetings where all of our fellow teacher educators would be in those meetings. So we were able to start to grow the work quite organically um, using our own local spheres of influence to begin. And that has really been a fertile garden at OISE. And I, I do say that with a smile on my face because that actually in the early years about. 2012 grew into an educational garden that we could uh, model for our students the power of educational gardening. So it, uh, OISE has been a fertile ground quite literally in terms of that educational garden. Um, I started making community-based uh, art installations with environmental themes that have gone into our main stairwell. We call it our walking art gallery now. There's now 14 of them up and people love those environmental installations and they want to um, we do have our students and staff and faculty contribute all to those. So these are not artists created installations. These are community created installations. They're incredible, Hillary. From the moment you get off the subway and walk where there's an art installation and you walk into OISE and then I strongly recommend everybody to take the stairs and go up the staircase and see the art installations. And one of the things I just want to remark on is the blend of art and science and the way you show that systems thinking and you model that ecological literacy and systems thinking approach to teacher candidates who then can take, I know you inspired me. I leave my bulletin boards blank. And as the students come in, I do learning boards that are in essence art installations of what we're learning in science. And then we use it for data and math. And, you know, so I really encourage people to take time to read the pieces that you've put up beside the art installations. They're wonderful. Well, and thank you, Jen. Thanks for the, the plug. Um, I have to warn people though, right now the Oise building is closed until at least uh, January of, of 2022. <laughs> of um, course, I don't well, want a whole bunch of people that, tromping through, but thank you. Okay, the, so the good news is you can go on the Oise Environmental and Sustainability Ed Initiative website. That's 
Um, you just if you type in OISE, ESE, you'll find it. And there is under the, um, the ESE in practice section, there's a whole section dedicated to the uh, environmental artwork. So you can see them, in fact, now on the, on the line. Okay, I'll link that in the notes to this podcast. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so again, that's another example of that's that's where I have some expertise as an art education. So that was one of the things I started doing early on. I had done many installations with children previously. I hadn't worked with adults so much in community-based um, art education, um, and so that was a bit of a leap of faith that I could do it with adults. And I was really lucky. I've always had each year a handful of uh, OISE students who have been amazing collaborators who act sort of as the core team, and we figure out. What the theme is going to be, we figure out, you know, how we're going to do it, what kind of materials we're going to use, all of those kinds of things, um, and uh, and then other people. We usually have anywhere up to about a hundred people that add their own artwork to the, the bigger installations, which is which is really exciting because that gets yeah, a lot of people incredible. involved in art making, which is great from my perspective as an art educator. But it also gets them um, introduced to environmental uh, issues that are out there and how they can contribute in positive ways. Uh, we did the impact uh, of our students being involved in creating these um, environmental art installations. And I wasn't surprised to discover that they'd had positive experiences. Um, I'd been hearing that anecdotally from them for quite a while, but through a qualitative research study, we were able to ascertain not only did it um, have a positive impact on their sense of belonging at OISE, their sense of community that connected them more strongly to the community, but it also had a really positive impact on their attitudinal development in terms of environmental issues, but also their behavioral shifts, which is not a piece that I was expecting. So people would come out after studying about native plants and say, Hillary, I took what I learned from being involved in that environmental art installation. And I went home and I, this spring I've planted all sorts of native plant species in my garden because I now understand more about the importance. So, um, you know, whatever the theme happens to be, and the themes have changed over the years, often focusing on the, the impact of the climate crisis on a wider range of living beings beyond humans. Um, and it, it's been really wonderful as part of that research study to, to understand more fully that we can have behavioral shifts that are caused by uh, environmental arts, and I do say arts, because it could be through performance, it could be through dance, it could be through visual arts, um, through these kinds of um, sort of provocations. And that's really one of the goals of eco-inquiry and that I see as one of the deeper goals of environmental education, that you know, you are teaching teacher educators about the, the ecology of systems, whether that's freshwater lakes or having to do with birds or bees or any number of the installations that you are, um, that you've done. But then what I hear you saying is that these then become actionable items. There's, there's actually such a profound level of learning and caring that people are willing to change their habits to develop a greater um, sort of environmental citizenship, environmental sustainability. And that's my hope. In, as an environmental educator, that's, that's really the goal because ultimately the system that we have been working in for the last 500 years from a from a European or colonial perspective it's it's damaging our ecological integrity to such an intense degree that it isn't just climate change or global warming but it's also an intense degradation of ecological systems and so um, teaching people about these ecological systems but then that transforming into action is 
I'm wondering if you see then that the teacher educators are then taking this practice, this, this transformative way of teaching in, that is the foundation of environmental education, and are they able to weave it into their practical placements? And perhaps even as becoming teachers or taking the environmental ed AQs afterwards, is there this slow transformation that you see happening? And do you have any research on that? There, there absolutely is a transformation and not always so slow. I've been really intensely working on this just, just over, you know, since 2008 at OAZ. So that's 13-ish years. Um, so that's not that long a period really in the grand scheme of things. We, you I'm just impatient. I just think environmental education should be happening like 30 years ago. Well, right. and, and it, it was happening 30 years ago to be fair, but in, in much quieter, more subtle ways. Mm -hmm. um, you were talking about the impact of thinking about natural systems a minute ago. And, I, and I've always taken this notion of systems thinking, of understanding that we work in systems in the world, both in terms of the environments, uh, both natural and built that support us, but also as humans. And if we can maximize those components of, um, of systems thinking, and I learned about that from Frido Friedkoff uh, Capra's work from Absolutely. the Center for Literacy in the States. Absolutely, I just finished um, his course. It's amazing. Uh, so, you know, if you take that to heart, you start to realize that you do work within networks. And that's what we did at OISE. We started to do the work with the teacher candidates, but then we realized we had another network through teacher educators to work with. We started to build a provincial network and that started about 2013. We had a provincial round table in environmental education specifically aimed at those who do teacher education, preparing teachers for classrooms. Many of those people do work in universities and teacher ed programs, but lots of them work in community-based organizations too. So we brought all those people together in Ontario and we started a provincial network. And then by 2017, we had a national roundtable and we began to build a national network of teacher educators from across the country who do this work. And I now co-chair that national network. So it's amazing how when we start to think of the ripple effect of, that any of us have in the world, um, that we can extend our networks, we can extend our ripple effects of those networks um, in, the, in really helping to expand and deepen environmental education. So, um, you know, one example I, I'm really excited about that's coming out of that national network, we've been doing a lot of focused work with teacher educators who work in faculties of education the last few years. We've been really strengthening the research that's being done in this country around this, but I'm really excited that this fall we're launching a new national um, digital course, an e-course uh, for teacher candidates anywhere in the country. Now, I would say this is a, a, a tiny little positive thing that's come out of all of the digital learning we've been doing over the last year in education at all levels. We've, we've all gotten a lot more savvy and a lot more practiced at leading online learning. And so now we're gonna extend this and bring teacher candidates together from across the country to do an introductory course in environmental and sustainability ed. That's not such a big deal. Teacher candidates at OISE, they get mandatory courses in this. Same at Trent University, same at University of British Columbia. But most faculties of education do not have any kind of mandatory courses and many do not even have elective courses that students can take in environmental and sustainability ed to learn more about how to weave practices of sustainability and uh, climate change education into their own K-12 classrooms. And this is where we need to ramp up. Education is so important to making this shift with all Canadians and frankly with people around the world. Education is key to making this shift the cultural shifts that are required to live more sustainability. Uh, there's no doubt that, that technology is gonna help us. We know that we're having 
rapid advances in sustainable energy systems, for example, and sustainable transportation, which is great, but we need the next generation to be not only involved in those, but um, thinking more broadly, thinking more creatively in terms of how we move this forward in a very rapid pace. So you're right, the timepiece is really sensitive, but that's where education can play a really key role is in helping students from very young ages start to understand the importance of, of loving and caring for the environments in which they live, uh, but also figuring out as they get older, how are we going to uh, really embed this truly in all aspects of how we operate in the world? And we can only do that if students have been really deeply thinking about this for you know, all of their upbringing. And that's where teachers are so impactful in the work. Uh, we need all teachers, K to 12, on board with that. And that means teacher educators have to be planting those seeds again with, uh, with young teachers, with emerging teachers, right from the beginnings of their career. And I will also um, cite the deeper document in the in the speaker notes for people to learn more about that. So I have two questions. One is a micro question, sort of a, a, a personal question moving on to uh, another project that you're so much a part of. So I hope our listeners can see or hear that Dr. Hillary Inwood is um, a master at collaborating and and taking what moves her emotionally and building partnerships and wider networks and i'm so glad that you talked about papa's um system thinking and center for equal literacy i refer to that a, a lot and i finished his course this winter and actually i mean because he's I, I learned about him 30 years ago with the turning points at trenton environmental studies so um it was so lovely to actually talk to him and 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 be able to email back and forth with him he's very personally involved in the course so that was wonderful but my question, Hillary, is from a personal characteristic point of view, what advice would you give people in the environmental education movement to move from, you know, having that real sense of personal purpose? That this is this is almost like a calling. Teaching is a calling. Being an environmental educator is even more of a really deep calling. How do you move, even with students, from having that individual ethic to building the collaborations that you do? What what are your superpower skill advice to people for building collaborations? Oh gosh, that's a great question, Jen. I'm not sure I have any superpower advice on that. I'm, but you just do it, you do it. So I'm wondering, maybe I'm putting <laughs> you on the spot here, but you do this better. And I think people who know you would say that that you are masterful at this. You, you're so genuinely able to, to build um, relationships and pull people in and, and have the movement get wider and wider and wider. What drives you to do that? You know, I, I was thinking about that in preparation for, for this interview. And I, I think in part, it comes from being in a big family um, and always feeling that strong sense of connection. So I, I got to, you know, give a shout out to my family, I guess, a little bit in that. Um, but I think also that for me, this is the joy of teaching and learning is, is having relationships with people and strengthening them. I love that the relationships I have go in, for, in some cases, in, in my professional relationships go way back. You and I both work with uh, Pam Miller, who is an instructional leader with the Toronto District School Board's Eco Schools Program. And uh, I've been, I've, I've had the joy of working with Pam uh, since we both started in this work. She's been so supportive. I've learned so much from her uh, over time. Um, but I have to tell you that we, we go back, we went to high school together. Um, now, some people would say, well, you kind of had a head start then. Not really, because Pam went off into science education and I went off into art education. And we, you know, we were still friends, but 
not not really closely working together for many years until uh, she ended up back in Toronto teaching for the TVSB. And um, I was really lucky. I, I've had a lot of joy that I've derived from my friendships with people over the years. And certainly I've learned pretty early on in my career that if you cultivate those same kind of relationships in your professional circles, that you get the same kind of joy from it. So to me, I've this seen you, I've seen you had have joy with friendships of people on a portage trail. You know, yeah. <laughs> my family, when I travel being an educator, they're like, okay, yeah, everybody says Miss Barron, you know, when you're going wherever. But for you, it's everywhere. You're so you're you have so many wonderful, wonderful connections that, that you've built on. And I'm gonna actually ask you a question about then the partnership that you've been able to build between OISE and Toronto District School Board, a very, very unique partnership between an Ontario university and the biggest district school board um, in the province and how you've lifted environmental education that way. And, and that's gonna be my last, one of my last questions, my second last question. Well, and you know, that goes back to the notion of relationships, right? Uh, my colleague, Pam Miller and I had an existing relationship that we really enjoyed working together. We went to a professional development event in about, you know, I think it was around 2001, uh, together uh, focused on environmental ed. We both got really excited about the concepts. Uh, we started to think about, okay, how can we deepen this in the TDSB? Um, a part of that comes from uh, relationships for sure, right? How, how can we broaden this? Um, I know that I'm in a position of privilege uh, working at OISE. No doubt. I know that working with new teachers and getting them excited about things, whether that's uh, visual arts education, whether that's environmental education, uh, is a really wonderful position to be in. And I do liken it to planting seeds. So um, we were able to extend the work and we call this pre-service teacher education, working with new teachers who are up and coming. Um, and Pam certainly helped me do work in that field. And then I'd go and help her with in-service teacher education, working with practicing teachers. And that started really small. Evergreen was another partner in that work really early on. We started doing some summer institutes and that sort of snowballed into additional qualification courses, which are available here in the province of Ontario. They're not available in other parts of the country, but uh, for teachers, we were doing these intensive three week summer um, courses for them uh, starting, I think about eight years ago. Uh, Jen, you teach those courses as well. So you understand that those can have really wonderful effects on teachers. And then we were really lucky to work with, I, I think one of the masterminds of environmental ed in the whole country. Um, this is Richard Christie, who is now the senior management, excuse me, senior manager of sustainability at the Toronto District School Board. Um, he is really masterful. You've used the word masterful, I would apply it to Richard, in terms of thinking about the systems um, of a school board and how we can really better embed sustainability in every aspect of that system. And Richard came to us uh, in 2000, I think it was, 16 originally with the idea about how about developing this partnership between the TDSB largest school board not only in Canada but actually I think the third or fourth largest school board in the whole of North America it's, wow. it's a really big school board so this is just so profound the work that you're doing in this partnership yeah it, it really is exciting because we haven't found anything else quite like it anywhere else in the world so far which is really neat I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other parts of the world but not that anybody's reporting on so far in international There's a lot school. to learn from you. We could, anyway, continue, because I know we could, we're going to have to have a second podcast, but yeah, continue, maybe. please. Um, so, so that we devised a, a, a special partnership between the TDSB Eco-Schools program, which was at that point the largest eco-schools program in the country. Um, and then 
connecting that to OISE's work through their Environmental and Sustainability Ed Initiative, which was also doing a pretty extensive amount of work uh, in courses and research and extracurricular activities for our teacher candidates. And we came up uh, with the idea based on Richard's invitation to, to marry those two things together, to bring teacher candidates in the early stages of their education and career together with practicing teachers who are already doing this work through the eco schools program so that they would have mentors and models and that the teachers have a way to develop their leadership skills as well so we're we've now into our uh, just at the end of our fourth year of this partnership it has been astounding we've been offering somewhere between 20 to 25 events uh, initially in person now online uh, to support professional learning and environmental ed for both pre-service and in-service teachers. Uh, we've got uh, an annual conference uh, that happens each year. We've got um, research projects that are running alongside it. We have an action research team of teachers in the TDSB that we work with as researchers to support them doing research around environmental ed in their own classrooms, which is quite unique, uh, I have to tell you. Um, so again, just really exciting. We're actually just starting um, as part of an extension of this collaboration, a new professional learning community, what a lot of teachers know as uh, PLC, this summer specifically focused on um, climate change education. And I'm doing that in conjunction with my colleague, Jim Slada at, at OISE as well. So it's starting to spread. I, I love this. It's getting more people engaged in OISE uh, than we've ever had involved in before. It's getting more people involved on the school board side. And you know we, we're always welcome to other teachers and educators joining in from other, um, other school boards as well. We've had teachers from all across the GTA, sometimes as far afield as Europe and the Southern states joining in on our online webinars in the last year. Um, so it shows you that there is a demand for this, this kind of learning. And I think that honestly, that the kudos have to go to the TDSB for uh, understanding how important this work is and for helping to fund it. Um, they fund this because they've put solar panels on 300 schools and they derive a revenue off that and that's helped to fund this entire partnership which is so exciting like sustainability in a physical sense sustain, uh, funding sustainability in a conceptual and educational sense so um and, and again just uh, tdsb was richard christie was the person who who started that idea and i i'm hoping it's one that's going to be picked up and grown across uh, other school board university partnerships across the world it really is a world-class model, Hillary. It's incredible. And I and I hope that our listeners are hearing just how impactful it is and really unique and sig significant. So I, I do have now I, I do have two other questions that I want to ask before before we go. And um I know that we could talk about that subject that you just that you just discussed, the partnership with TDSB and OISE ECE again for days and you've written on it so I will put a, a link to you to what you've written um, as well but so in in working with environmental education at the adult level in additional qualification courses you know for the last oh gosh 20 years with various service providers something that has come up in the last five or six years and and that I'm working on with a sense of urgency is that we're hearing from black educators people of color, that they feel that the environmental education movement and outdoor education is not a place where they see themselves. And that, um, you know, both you and I are in positions where we're writing courses, revising courses. So that is a position of privilege. And 
um, I, I feel a strong sense of urgency to say it, it's it's true. This this is work that needs to be addressed. It's work that uh, needs to be done. And um, can you just tell me a little bit about how you're going about doing that and, and advice to others in the field? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you and I have been talking about the field of environmental education. At OISE, we refer to it as environmental and sustainability education. Sure. Really, the most recent models to address your question are come around through eco-justice education. And I've been doing a lot more work in this field, um, uh, bringing in speakers as part of our um, professional learning events, um, organizing conferences on eco-justice education. And eco-justice is really the integration of social justice, the focus on equity, on diversity, on inclusion, um, on anti-oppression um, education, on anti-discriminatory education. It's that integration with environmental education. So when you Absolutely. bring those together, it's an eco-justice education model. And I really do think that's where things are going to be moving more and more in future. And rightfully so. Uh, after listening and learning from colleagues who are Indigenous, colleagues who are Black, colleagues who are people of colour, uh, people who um, have a range of physical disabilities and neurodiversities, there is no doubt that the field of environmental education has been somewhat exclusionary in the past. And um, it has been um, really run in, in large part by people who are white. Uh, and we have not had the, uh, we've not had the true ability to draw from multiple perspectives and ways of knowing in the field. So that's been part of my own personal journey in recent years is to learn from indigenous ways of knowing in particular. Um, you know, one of my favorite books, and you, I know you've read this one too, is Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Of course. It's just such a fantastic introduction to how we can bring indigenous ways to going uh, together with Western ways of knowing um, and, and really benefiting from more deeply understanding how the world works around us, nature in particular. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer is just such a fantastic scholar on so many levels and a wonderful speaker. So I can highly recommend people pick up some of her videos online as well to listen to. Um, you know, so, so listening to, um, to scholars from indigenous fields, listening to uh, scholars and educators uh, from the Black Lives Matter movement, from um, you know, critical disability studies, like all of these are gonna only strengthen the field of environmental learning when we listen to the needs of many different uh, groups of people. Um, but I would also extend that one step further. Eco-justice education has been really wonderful in getting us to consider the needs, not just of humans in the climate crisis, but of what we call more than human beings. All our relations. All forms of life, that's right, all my relations. To borrow, to borrow the statement, from in indigenous culture and really when you have that systems view of life you see the value and of everything within the system humans included yeah. but uh taking a more humble stance as yeah. a human within that well and, and it goes back to our one of our earlier comments about the power of relationships i mean i've, I've had that uh reinforced by all of the learnings that i've done in, in terms of indigenous education about the importance and the power of relationships and there's no doubt that that again strengthens all of our work in every field when you bring a strong importance on relationship rather than on product for example or and that reciprocity right? right that we have the relationship to nature but yep. we also have this responsibility to to give back and a responsibility of hope with with our youth to go back to that eco anxiety that really as environmental educators, I see our primary purpose as 
right now where we are placed at this moment in history of a responsibility of hope to continue to do the work to, to make the world a better place for all, all living things, water, air. Yeah. Hillary, and on Jen, that? You know, not, not a bad place to leave. It was with David Orr's quote, which has stayed with me ever since I, I learned it. I heard it recently attributed to Elizabeth May. It's not Elizabeth May's quote. It is David Orr, who is a, a fantastic and really influential environmental educator and scholar and researcher from the States. And he said that hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Hope is a verb. I love that. I have up. not heard that before. That's beautiful. It is. And hope not only to me does it encapsulate the importance of hope in the work that we do, that we need to take a hopeful stance that we can make things better moving forward. Because miring in the doom and gloom approach that has been, you know, part of the environmental ed movement back starting in the 80s and 90s, it does not get anywhere, getting get anybody anywhere, right? So we need to see that hopeful stance, but we, it's also going to involve hard work. We need to roll up our sleeves. Action. I love yes. it. Can you say that one more time? Yeah, absolutely. So it's hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Hillary Enwood, thank you so much. It um, There's a little bit of an urgency to wrap up in that there's a lightning and thunderstorm going on outside oh. and I don't, if my internet goes out then, and I haven't pressed stop on the recording, we might lose this. So thank you so much. I hope that you will come back again to talk. And I know our listeners are going to appreciate every word. I'm going to listen to to what you've had to say over and over again. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. I really appreciate the chance. I always love speaking with you. So thank you.